And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. It's Monday. Yes, indeed. Kicking off a brand new week here in the dojo and uh, going to equip ourselves in order to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And, uh, yeah, got a great show in store for us today. We're going to kick off the week with Carlo Broussard, the Raging Cajun at Catholic Answers. He has written a fantastic work. It's kind of like a sequel to his work, uh, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, called Meeting the Protestant Response. And so not only do you get the answers or the objections to uh, major Catholic doctrines, but you get the uh, follow-up questions and how to answer them and debunk them. And uh, this is... I mentioned this before when I was talking to Carlo. This was a book idea I actually had a while ago, <coughs> just answering the objections behind the objections. Because I, I know that a lot of Catholic apologists who uh, are well-informed will go into a dialogue. They will present their arguments. And there was the, the objection that, uh, you know, the common response object to their objections. But rarely are apologists equipped to answer the follow-up, you know, the deeper uh, response to uh, various things. And uh, so that's why I was thrilled when I saw Carlo's book out in print, because finally now there's that resource that's available. And uh, now you can uh, get a full, like, 360 uh, response to uh, apologetic questions between Catholics and Protestants. And, uh, man, I wish Carlo would, like, go into, like, um, he could actually take this book series and go into things other than Catholic theology. Maybe uh, that would be really cool to meet the uh, the Jewish challenge or the Muslim challenge or uh, Jehovah Witness challenge and things like that. Because uh, I love the format. I love the concept. And he does a fantastic job as far as research and responses. In fact... Uh, not a few times already. He's come up with things that uh, I never considered different angles. So uh highly recommend all his books that Carlo writes. Uh, he's a fantastic writer. And especially this latest one, Meeting the Protestant Response. And that's what we're going to talk about. In fact, specifically today, we're going to talk about the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And as you know, uh, in Catholic Apologetics, the um, the big point there is, who decides the decision of the council? Is it Peter or is it James? Protestants will often argue James. But is that so? And uh, so Carlo's going to come on. We're going to look at the Protestant response to Peter being the decider of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But uh, before we do that, that's on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to find the fallacy. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Slippery Slope Fallacy. And we're going to meet an early church father. As you know, for uh, every episode, 
we go through Jurgen's faith and early fathers and pick out the the short bios that he writes for each uh, father that he has in his compendium. And today's early church father is an obscure one, even for apologists. Um, but I think it's also somebody that we should know about, St. Peter of Alexandria. So St. Peter of Alexandria. And so, uh, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I didn't think about that, but it's great. We should always try to integrate our devotion, our piety, with our studies as apologists, because it becomes very easy for us to think of the faith only in terms of objections, answers, all head knowledge. But these, the early church fathers aren't just datum, right, or data. Uh, the early church fathers are living human beings. And many of them have been sanctified and have honors of the altar. So St. Peter of Alexandria, pray for us. And indeed, maybe we get a, every episode when we go through an early church father. If it's a saint, definitely invoke that saint for aid. All right. So all of that's coming up on this side of the break. Before we begin the festivities, so to speak, I want to welcome all of you to the show. Welcome to the dojo, everybody. It's great to have you with us, all of you listening on radio around the country. And, of course, our live stream audience, hello. And, with lest I forget, the pod people, podcast peeps around the world. Welcome aboard, everybody. It's great to have you with us. A uh, couple of things I want to point out, as I do every single episode. Go to virtualmostpowerfulradio.org. That's our website or the phone app, if you haven't downloaded it. You can live stream. Virgin Most Powerful Radio on your phone, or um, perhaps you're going to miss Carlo Broussard. Maybe you're in a discussion about the Jerusalem Council, but you're going to miss our program here. Um, you want to check it out. All you have to do is just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on hands-on apologetics, and bam, you got the whole shebang right there. Listen to it, download it, share it, do all sorts of stuff. In fact, I highly recommend you share the program. Because uh, let people know about us. Um, we've been uh, doing this program for a little, I think it's either about two years, maybe a little over two years now. And we've grown quite a bit. And that's because of you sharing the program, telling people about it. Please continue to do so. Also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. And that's how you get a hold of me, the sensei <laughs> that I call myself. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. If you're, uh, maybe you're in discussions, you have questions or so on, uh, or if maybe you have a guest suggestion, love to hear from you. If you do, by the way, just make sure you have a link to their stuff and give me some contact info so I can get a hold of them. I'll check it out and, uh, we'll see what happens. And, uh, in fact, uh, we're going to have uh, some more guest suggested, wait, I always get that mixed up. Audience suggested guest on the show. There we go. And maybe our guest suggests guest. I don't know. So either way, um, <laughs> many thanks and keep them coming. All right. The finding the fallacy today is the slippery slope fallacy. I think this is something everybody's familiar with, and we've probably heard bandered about. What exactly is the slippery slope? Well, the slippery slope in logic, critical thinking, uh, political rhetoric, and case law is an argument in which a party asserts that a relatively small step leads to a chain of related events, culminating in some significant event or effect. 
Um, so usually it's uh, each step of the way gets bigger and more grand until eventually you reach the point where uh, you, the projected effect of whatever the, the uh, somewhat small, um, relatively small first step results in something that no one will accept. <clears throat> so, um, which is, uh, occurs all the time and you have to be careful. Um, but because there's, there are legitimate ways of arguing that have the outward appearances of a slippery slope fallacy yet are not. Um, <clears throat> great example of this, by the way, is the redefinition of marriage. Um, it was, it was argued by those against such a redefinition that if it the marriage is refined, then you would come up with all sorts of really strange, unwanted uh, people being, you know, quote unquote, married. Um, and the response was, well, that's a slippery slope fallacy, because it certainly sounded like it, because you're listing all these really absurd and, and consequences that I don't think anybody would accept. But it wasn't a slippery slope because uh, what we're dealing with is the change of a definition. And so all, all you're doing is just showing what things would fall within that new definition. It wasn't a hypothetical if, uh, cause, chain of cause and effect that results in a huge significant effect. It was really just looking at the law as it, as it stood. So you need to be careful. Not everything that looks like a slippery slope is a slippery slope. And so um, just be aware and be ca cautious whenever that comes up. And that's our finding of the fallacy for today, the slippery slope fallacy. And needing our early church father for today, who is St. Peter of Alexandria, it is generally assumed that Peter, although he was anti-originist, was head of the catechetic school in Alexandria prior to his being made bishop of the see around the year 300 AD. After being bishop of Alexandria for about 11 years, he died a martyr's death. Except for a short letter to the clergy of Alexandria in reference to Miletus of Lycopolis, uh, who had usurped the see of Alexandria when Peter withdrew from the city during the persecution, and who had thereby instigated the so-called Milesian uh, schism, which persisted for several centuries, by the way. His writings are extant only in fragments. So we only have a few things from St. Peter of Alexandria, one of which is Penance or the Canonical Letter, which is written A.D. 306. Only fragments are extant, preserved as 14 canons embodied in the law collection of the Eastern Church, 14 canons are usually referred to with something less than historical accuracy as a canonical letter. The 15 canons found in many Greek manuscripts is of the same author as the treatise of the Paschal Feast. Another work of St. Peter of Alexandria is The Soul, which was written sometime before 311. And Peter's treatise on the soul cannot be dated except uh, before that day, probably the year of his death. Uh, probably the year of his death. There's only three fragments of the work which are preserved. Two of them in a treatise against the Monophysites by Leonatius of Byzantium. And, uh, yeah. And the other one, I can't see. Oh, uh, no. The other one, I'm not sure where the fragment exists. That's our early church father for today, St. Peter of Alexandria. 
Coming up next, Kylo Broussard. We're going to talk about Act 15. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we're going to be talking about Responding, or actually uh, meeting the Protestant response. As you know, uh, in apologetics, we deal with objections and answering objections. And But what about the, uh, the objections behind the objections? You know, often we will have our, our case set out, make some really good points, but then ultimately when it comes to... Um, when it comes to uh, providing a, a good response to how a more thought out response to our objection. I don't know if that makes any sense. You know, what do we do? How do we answer those uh, extra questions lurking in the background? Well, we're very fortunate because we have a fantastic book that just came out. It's called Meet the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments by none other than Carlo Broussard. Carlo, of course, is a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers. He's traveled the country, given lectures on apologetics, biblical studies, uh, theology, philosophy. He has contributed to Catholic Answers magazine. He also has written several, several awesome apologetic works that I recommend each and every one. Uh, is just, everything that comes from Carlo is gold as far as I'm concerned, especially this last book. And uh, Carlo, welcome to uh, Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, hey, it's great to have you on, uh, especially talking about this book and uh, meeting the Protestant response. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I mentioned it before, It's like I came up with an idea like that a while ago. I thought, boy, there's nothing out there for apologists because we're, we're used to answering objections, but once there's a response, we don't know what to do with the response. And I thought it'd be great to have a book that takes the extra step. And then you wrote it. So it's like, <laughs> hey, we're all set. Well, I must say, I'm glad I came to the idea first. <laughs> I can get a book out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so thorough, too. In fact, uh, uh, I've, been, I've been learning new things, you know, just going through the first parts of your book. And... Uh, of course, today we're going to talk about a real important topic, namely the Council of Jerusalem and yeah. Acts 15. Because uh, as Catholics, when we read it, we see that, that Peter is the one who decides the issue of Max, Acts 15. But as you know, I mean, the big response from non-Catholics is, no, it isn't Peter. It's actually James. Right. Yeah, that's that's the most common comeback that I, and I actually deal with that in my book. Mm. And so uh, the, the idea is that James is the leader. Two reasons are often given to substantiate or justify that claim, one of which is that the imperative mood is used for the command, listen, when James says, brethren, listen, the Greek akousate, uh, to me, there in verse 13, the imperative mood is used. It's inferred from that that James is leading the council with supreme—not just leading the council proceedings, but having a supreme authority at the council over and above Peter. 
The second reason that's often given to justify the claim that James is the leader here and having more authority than Peter is that he says in verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so for these two reasons, it's argued that James is exercising a primary leadership role there at the council that supersedes that of Peter. So that's the common comeback. Mm-hmm. Now, as we begin to respond, Gary, as I point out in my book, we could take that first reason first and begin to address that. Just because the imperative mood is used in Greek, it doesn't necessarily follow that James has authority over the group. And that no more follows than when we use the imperative mood in English. So, for example, Gary, if I'm here at Catholic Answers and we're having a staff, apologist staff meeting, <laughs> and, you know, we apologists are going back and forth, arguing for our position and a bunch of hoopla going on, and Chris Check is there at the, at the head of the table, I could stand up and say, hey, listen, guys, listen, and then begin to try and settle the debate amongst us apologists. Just because I used imperative mood, it doesn't follow that I somehow now have usurped the authority of Chris Check as our CEO, right? <laughs> right? So just simply appealing to the imperative mood does not entail authority over the group. And then secondly, to move forward, the contextual details actually suggest, Gary, that Peter does indeed have more authority than James. So for if we when we compare and contrast the actions of Peter and the actions of James, this becomes clear. So take, for example, that it's Peter who takes the initiative to settle the theological debate and not James. So it's not, you know, James doesn't give up and give a speech until after, Peter. And James actually acknowledges and affirms what Peter said before he makes his proposal. There in verse 14 saying, Simeon has related. So think about this, Gary. If James had just as much authority over the group as Peter or more, he would have been the one to take the initiative and settle the substance of the debate, not Peter. So that's the first point I would make in com- comparing and contrasting Peter's actions and James's actions. Peter takes the initiative, not James. Secondly, if we look at the content of the speech itself, we see a stark contrast between the two. So, for example, the content of Peter's speech is a matter of divine revelation concerning whether circumcision saves or not. And based on his, based on that revelation, Peter actually makes a doctrinal statement that's more than mere, mere opinion. For he says there in verse 11, we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Peter doesn't offer this view as what he thinks should be believed. He offers it as what is believed, speaking on behalf of the Christian community being the voice of divine revelation here. So not only do you have the content being a matter of divine revelation, 
but Peter proclaiming it as a doctrinal statement that we believe this on behalf of the Christian community. Now contrast that with James's speech, which unlike it having to do with content of divine revelation, it's pastoral in its orientation. James gets up and proposes ways in which they could unify the Jewish and Christian, Christian uh, excuse me, the Jewish and Gentile Christians. It's part of a practical problem that only arises because of the truth that Gentiles can be saved and enter into the Christian family. And because of that, there's these practical problems that are arising concerning Jewish sensibilities about eating meats offered to idols, eating meats that aren't fully drained of blood, and uh, other things. And so James gets up and proposes these precepts to be binding on the Gentile Christians in order to keep the peace between the new Gentile converts and the Jewish Christians. And so notice how what James proposes is pastoral in orientation. And then secondly, he does not say, like Peter, this is how it's going to be. He offers his idea for consideration. So this gets to the my judgment portion of the challenge or the comeback, uh, Gary. In verse 19 uh, there, James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. Okay? So he's not saying, this is how it's going to be. He's saying, yeah, this is my judgment. And the Greek word translated as judgment there, krino, has a range of meanings, including preference, opinion, to think, or to consider. So it's a less than definitive content nature of what he's proposing, right? This is what I'm thinking we should do, rather than this is what the Christian community is going to do. Like what Peter did when he declared, this is what the Christian community believes, grace of Jesus, not circumcision for salvation. In contrast, James says, hey guys, this is what I'm thinking we should do. That's the connotation of his judgment there in verse 19. And notice, Gary, that not only is he proposing his judgment or his opinion for consideration, but even the council members perceive it to be so because they actually have to consider the matter and then later come together collectively to agree that, yes, we're going to adopt what James is proposing for the Christian community and then in verses 28 and 29 say, it has seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to lay upon you no further burdens than these, and listing the precepts that are pastoral in nature. It is true that one of the precepts is has to do with morality, the Greek word there being perneia, some sort form of sexual immorality, but the other three of the four are pastoral in nature. But the point is, is that James says, hey guys, this is what I'm thinking we should do. They collectively consider the matter, and come to a decision to adopt James's proposed precepts. That is not what happens with regard to what Peter says concerning the revelation of how we are to be saved. They accept, they do not consider what Peter says, they simply accept it. And whenever you compare and contrast the nature or the content of Peter's speech and James's speech, and the manner in which Peter is given the speech and James is given the speech, 
and the audience's response to Peter's speech and James's speech, it becomes clear, as I argue in my book, Gary, that James is not exercising an authority that's equal to and or possibly over and above Peter. Rather, James has a less authority than Peter. Even though we can concede that James is a, the leader of the council proceedings, because as history tells us, he's is most probably the bishop of Jerusalem at that time, and Peter is not. And so James does have a leadership role in guiding the council proceedings. But it does not follow from that, that he has authority over the council like Peter does in declaring definitively divine revelation. What is divine revelation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, beautiful response. That always struck me as, you know, <laughs> the uh, those two words seem to bear an awful lot of argumentative weight, you know, like the imperative mood of uh, yeah. James and, and then Crino, you know, I judge. Uh, that's, you know, that's an awful lot of weight to put on, you know, the subtleties of these two words. Sure, and, uh, sure. And yeah. I mean, if if those two words would somehow bring with the imperative mood and Crino would somehow bring with it a supreme authoritative connotation, then the argument would work. But that's just simply not the case. Absolutely. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard about his brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Uh, we'll be right back right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard about his new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. In fact, I was putting together a list of recommended books. You know, there's always near the end of the year you have recommended books. And this one's definitely on my list. So if you check it out, folks, go to shop.catholic.com. I think every apologist ought to have a copy of it. And we're talking about Acts 15 and uh, Peter. Uh, is it Peter or James who decides the council? And, yeah, fantastic points, Carl. I mean, I think, you know, the question of the council is whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, right? Yeah. And if you just if you just erase Peter's words and you just go to James, and James' response is that, well, Amos says that the nations will stream into the church and that you should refrain from uh, unlawful marriage, uh, eating blood, that type of stuff. It doesn't answer the question of the council, does it? Good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, it point. just kind of yeah. hangs out nowhere. You t that's an excellent insight, Gary. If you take out Peter's declaration there, the theological dispute is not settled. Yeah. And so it's yeah. clear that his response there in verses 7 through 11 does indeed settle the issue, which Luke tees up there in verse 6 by saying there's no small, yeah. there was no small debate. And so the apostles and the elders that are convening there to consider the matter, they're not all in agreement, and they're not all just sitting around just saying, oh, here's what I think, here's what you think. I mean, this is like a big deal, you know? And right. Luke's narration get, brings that out and, and, and conveys the, the tense nature, or the urgency of trying to settle this thing. And it's Peter's, as I mentioned, Peter's speech that does so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great response. In fact, reading your book, you came up with one that I don't think I've ever encountered, at least I never noticed, 
And that was from, I think it was Geisler and Nix, where uh, that Peter didn't convene the council and this, yeah. this council was a product of Antioch. Maybe you can explain that one a little bit. Yeah, Geisler and McKinsey bring this uh, up. That, hey, yeah, if Peter had been the first pope, they write, he would have convened the assembly in Jerusalem. Since he doesn't convene it, or at least there's no evidence that he did, he must not have been the first pope. The problem here is that the objection only works on a false assumption. We don't believe that the pope has to convene a council, right? You don't have to convene a council um, in order to, to, to be the pope, right? So just because, even if, I mean, it doesn't seem to be that Peter called the council, just because Peter doesn't as- assemble everyone and call it, it doesn't follow from that that he's not the first pope because— you don't have to be the Pope in order to call the council, right? You can have others agreeing to bring everybody together to consider to consider the matter. What counts is whether Peter, what Peter says concerning the issue being discussed among those who are assembled together there, the apostles and the elders. So this comeback just simply operates on a false assumption, and by exposing the false assumption and showing how it is a false assumption, it has no persuasive force. And even to this day, we recognize that a council can be convened by someone other than a pope and has been done so throughout church history. What matters is whether the pope confirms what has been proposed at the council or what the Pope might teach concerning issues about the council. So you could have the council fathers and all the members of the council propose a teaching on an issue and the Pope just simply puts his stamp of approval on it, thereby making it his own teaching. Or you can have the Pope himself sending a letter or teaching at the council and declaring the matter like Peter does uh, in Acts chapter 15. So yeah. uh, that's how I would, uh, that's how I respond to that comeback uh, with a little, few more details there in written form in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, that was my next question was whether there is councils that weren't convened by the Pope. So in a way, Jerusalem's almost like Council of Florence, right, where the, the Pope has an encyclical and the Council of Fathers basically give their thumbs up, you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Very cool stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so we've been covering so far just the Peter, but your book's a lot more than just Peter. For example, the sacraments, uh, and yeah. of course, it, you know, starting with baptism, I think the the biggest one everybody runs into is John three five, right? Being right. born of water and spirit, and that could be kind of thorny too, because there's it yeah. seems like there's a lot of responses. Yes. Yes, there are. And I go through uh, several of them in my book. One popular comeback is that the water is referring to our biological birth, that the water refers to, you know, Ron Rhodes, Protestant apologist, poses this comeback that the water refers to our first natural birth. And it's the spirit that refers to the supernatural birth. But in response, Gary, the context reveals both water and spirit uh, as being included in the second birth. So both water and spirit together constitute the second birth. With Even within the immediate context, we can see this. 
Jesus includes both spirit and water as one act that makes up the second birth. He doesn't say you must be born of water and then born of spirit, which you would think he would say if Rhodes's interpretation was correct. But Jesus doesn't say that. He actually includes both water and spirit as making up or constituting that second birth. Now, we could also argue in light of the wider context that the water and the spirit are associated with baptism. So, for example, back up just a couple of chapters, Gary, in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, we have the images of spirit and water together constituting one event of Jesus' baptism, which John hints at or alludes to there in John 1, 29 through 34. John the Baptist, that is, is hinting at Jesus' baptism. In John chapter 3, verse 23, which is establishing subsequent context coming after the born-again discourse, John the Evangelist records how John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near Salim. And we're told in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, that the apostles went about baptizing. So think about this, Gary. If the context, both before and after the born-again discourse, has to do with water and spirit associated with baptism, then it's reasonable to conclude that when Jesus speaks of being born again of water and spirit right in the middle of this immediate, uh, sub, uh, prior and subsequent context of baptism, that he's referring to baptism as well. Uh, so that would be a way in which we can argue for water and spirit as constituting uh, one event, the second birth or the new birth. Uh, now, another way to argue against this comeback, Gary, is to point out that to be born of water is not the language John uses for biological birth. John already has language in reference to the first birth or the natural birth. In John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's how John refers to the first or natural birth, being born of the flesh, not being born of water. That's not the language for biological birth. And then, uh, yeah, so actually, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke there. That was Jesus speaking there in John chapter 3, verse 6, when Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So being born of the flesh is language that Jesus uses for the first natural birth. Now, John, in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, for John, the language he uses for the first birth or the natural birth is being born of blood. So neither John nor Jesus refer to the first or natural birth with the language of being born of water. They each have their own way of referring to that first natural birth, and neither of which involves being born of water. So whenever we come to the born-again discourse and Jesus speaks of being born of water, we have no grounds to interpret that as a reference to the first or natural birth. In fact, we have positive evidence to the contrary, that this is not a reference to the first or natural birth, but is a reference to baptism, given the immediate and wider context of these two images of water and spirit referring to baptism and the water and spirit together constituting the second birth. Yeah, yeah, very, very good, important points. I Frankly, Carlo, I never understood 
the uh the amniotic fluid you know water thing versus the spirit <laughs> i mean how can you make it a condition that you have to be born i mean was was there like a checklist let's see okay first you have to be born okay check right. you know unless jesus was uh dialoguing with a uh, unborn child you know yeah it, it's a weird condition you know? yes yeah the, the idea the idea there is kind of like well, we all know that we've already been born, right? Why would you need to state that you need to be born first and then be born again? Now, somebody, to be fair, may push back on that and say, well, you know, the point that Jesus is drawing out here is the contrast between the first birth and the second birth. So he's trying to emphasize that there is a second birth in contrast to the first birth. And so maybe that's why he's highlighting such a mundane point that everybody already knows just simply to drive home the contrast between the two and that you need a second birth, which is the heavenly birth. So if someone would make that argument, that's fine, but we would proceed forward with the lines of argumentation that I've already articulated and, and that I do in the book yeah. to show that well, there's no reason to think, and we have reason to the contrary to think, that Jesus is not drawing a distinction between a first birth uh, here and a second birth by way of water and spirit. That Jesus, that Jesus says we must be born again already involves the implication that we've already been born a first time. Right. And that we must be born a second time. So there would be no need to emphasize first birth by water because first birth is already wrapped up conceptually in affirming that there is a need for a second birth. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. We're chatting with Carlo Bissar talking about his brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, available at shop.catholic.com or to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard, Master Apologist and author of a brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. Highly recommended. I mean, it's really a, a handbook for Catholic apologists. And Carlo, I, I mean, I love the, how thorough you are with the, uh, meeting these responses and also how thorough you are with the typical responses, because I think I, over the break, I was trying to think percentage wise, how many people would use the two birth response? I would say probably in that 90 percentile, but you yeah. also include the one that maybe 3% of non-Catholics I've talked to would use, namely uh, this, uh, where they would pull in from Ephesians 5 about uh, the bride being cleansed with the word. So yeah. it's not baptism that cleanses you. It's the word of God that cleanses you. Right. Yeah. They also appeal to 1 Peter one twenty three. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then Ephesians Five as well, 25 through 26, Christ cleansing the church by the washing of the water with the word. So the argument is it's the word of God that cleanses us, that gives us belief in the word of God. 
that uh, by which we are born anew. So it's the word of God that's cleansing us, not the waters of baptism. Uh, one problem, Gary, as I point out in my book with this comeback, is that being born anew by the word of God is not mutually exclusive of being born anew through the waters of baptism. It's possible that you can be born again by both, right? Uh, I mean, even just from a Catholic perspective, what is it in virtue of which we are born again by the waters of baptism? Precisely by the invoking of the, the proclamation of the word of God, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of it's kind of it's analogous to how the early church fathers and talking about the Eucharist describe how the Eucharist it, or the bread and the wine is changed into the body and blood of, the, of our Lord. They often speak of the the bread and the wine receiving the word of God. Hmm. in virtue of which there are changed. And that's precisely the words of institution. This is my body. This is my blood. The word of God changes the bread and the wine. Somebody might say, well, a priest doesn't change the bread and wine. It's the word of God. Well, of course, it's both and, right? It's the word of yeah. God that the priest proclaims in virtue of which the bread and wine are changed. Similarly, with regard to water baptism, the waters of baptism bring about the second birth in collaboration with the form, theologically speaking here, of, of, the, uh, of the ritual words. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God. So even just from a Catholic perspective, we can see that being born anew by the Word of God and being born again of water and spirit are not mutually exclusive. We affirm both, and together they constitute the, the new birth, the sacrament of baptism. Now, further, given that it's Peter, think about this, Gary, given that it's Peter in 1 Peter 1, 23, who's saying that we are born anew by the word of God, it's very unlikely that in Peter's mind, he would be envisioning the new birth by the word of God to the exclusion of water baptism when he's the one who says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that in order to be saved, you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins so that you and your children may receive the Holy Spirit, right? right. So it's, uh, and furthermore, that it's Peter who says in 1 Peter 1, 23, or wait, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, 21, that baptism now saves you within the context of saying, just as the waters of in the days of Noah saved Noah and his family, so too the waters of baptism, so too baptism now saves you. So we have other evidence. If we did not have any other evidence of Peter invoking baptism as a means for salvation, and all we had was Peter saying we're born anew by the word of God, then maybe the, art, the comeback would have a little more persuasive force but given that we have this other evidence where Peter clearly is associating water baptism with bringing about salvation, which is the new birth, which is being born again, then we can conclude that Peter envisions the new birth not to be the word by the word of God alone to the exclusion of water baptism, but both the word of God and water baptism.
So we get back to the classic Catholic both and and not either or. Yeah, very good. Yeah, exactly. It's like certs, you know, certs of breath mint, it's candy mint, it's two mints in one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's pretty heady stuff on hands on the podcast. <laughs> that was a great example, buddy. All right. Yeah, well, hey, I do my best, my friend. And <laughs> well, you brought up Acts, uh, and that's one of my favorite proof texts, too. Uh, where Peter says that you repent and be baptized everyone for the remission of your sins. Yeah. Um, which to me is, uh, <laughs> that is such a powerful objection against uh, anti-sacramental understanding of baptism. What's the common responses to that? Yeah. One common response is that the Greek preposition ace, E I S there translated as for, uh, can mean to it can mean uh, can be in, uh, tr- translated or interpreted or understood in a causal sense, like can indicate causality in order to attain, or it can also be taken in the sense of because of, like a resultant sense. So one way of reading this is that be baptized for, that is to say, in order to attain, the forgiveness of sins, that is, baptism will be a cause of the forgiveness of sins, or it could be read as be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the sense that the the forgiveness of sins or baptism will be a result of the forgiveness of sins. Like you need to be baptized in order to show forth that you've already been forgiven. Be baptized because you've been forgiven. So, it, and it is true that the preposition ace could be used in either of these two ways, in the causal sense, baptism being a cause of the forgiveness of sins, or a resultant sense, like you're going to be baptized because you've already been forgiven. Now, what's interesting, as I point out in my book, is that when Rhodes makes, uh, Ron Rhodes makes this argument, uh, he doesn't give any evidence for the resultant sense. He just simply asserts it. So it is true that it could be in it, it could be uh, seen or interpreted in either of the two ways. So now the question becomes, what other evidence do we have to justify one or the other senses in which the preposition ace is being used, the causal sense or the resultant sense? Well, uh, it's given what we've said so far, uh, in our conversation here and looking at the other evidence that say, for example, from first Peter three twenty one, that Peter says baptism saves us. We're looking at Romans chapter six, verses three through four, where St. Paul teaches us that through the death of baptism in which we are incorporated into Christ, first Corinthians 12, 13, in that death of baptism, Romans six, seven, we are freed from sin. And the Greek word there be the Greek word that the, the Greek verb that's used there can literally be translated as to be justified from sin. So when we look at this other evidence, or for example, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when Ananias tells Paul, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The implication being that the washing away of sins will come about after and as an effect of Paul being baptized. So when we bring all of that other evidence into play, we see that when we 
put that evidence on the scale, it's the causal sense that uh, we have evidence that leads in the direction of concluding or interpreting the preposition ace as a causal sense rather than the resultant sense. So it's, we do have to look to other evidence to de determine which sense Paul is, uh, Peter is using the preposition ace in. And when we look at that evidence, we see it's the causal sense, not the resultant sense. Now, so many Protestants will appeal, for example, and I know I'm running out of time here, but we'll, real quick, yeah. many will appeal to Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius and other Gentiles begin to manifest the Spirit, and it seems as if they were saved prior to baptism. And as I point out in the book, Gary, this in no way disproves the Catholic understanding of salvation coming as a result of baptism, because this is an extraordinary instance where there was a need for a public verification and manifestation that the Gentiles could be saved. And we, even as Catholics, acknowledge that God can save people and give them the graces of baptism without the sacrament of baptism. And this simply would be one of those cases where God is doing so, working outside the boundaries of the sacrament itself for some purpose, namely public verification that the, that the Gentiles can be saved. And so that's uh, Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius in no way poses a threat to the Catholic understanding that the forgiveness of sins comes as a result of or an effect of the sacrament of baptism. Yeah, yeah, well said. And I'm sorry I threw that question. I know that's a it's quite a big, big response. And there are more details in the chapter, in that particular chapter in the book. Yeah, and that gives our audience more incentive to buy the book, right? Absolutely. All the details and all the footnotes. <laughs> Dangle a little carrot for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of an appetizer. So, uh, okay, so uh, uh, what what have you been up to lately? What, what's yeah. on the docket? Well, I'm actually working, I've shifted focus on my next major project, and that is working on episodes for my new podcast, Gary. So awesome. your listeners and your viewers want to check out uh, Sunday Word, SundayCatholicWord.com or okay. MrSundayPodcast.com. <laughs> it's the whole Mr. <laughs> Clean thing, bald head kind of thing. All right. But the title of the podcast is The Sunday Catholic Word, where each week I look at the upcoming Sunday Mass readings for the Liturgy of the Word, but reflecting on highlighting the details that are relevant for doing apologetics. So it has a Catholic Answers twist to it. SundayCatholicWord.com. Nice. And it goes, the first episode goes live this week on Wednesday in preparation for the first Sunday of Advent. Okay, and that's at CarloBrassard.com? SundayCatholicWord.com. Okay. That's it. Okay, excellent. Well, Carlo, hey, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank Appreciate you, Gary. It. God bless you, buddy. All right, you too, my friend. Carlo Brissard, yeah, go shop.catholic.com and check out his new podcast. That sounds fantastic. Wow, all right, the hour's gone. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing called Hands on Apologetics. Bye bye, everyone.